This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho and I am a nutritional therapy practitioner. I work with clients to get to root cause healing and oftentimes that is gut healing with a meat based elimination diet. This week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Robert Sai West. Dr. Sai West is board certified in adult general surgery as well as pediatric surgery. Dr. Sai West specializes in weight management and bariatric surgery for adults. And he has lost over 100 pounds in his own journey. He is also known as the carb addiction doc. So he uses a lot of psychology and just changing actions and behaviors when it comes to、uh, true weight loss. So, one of my clients asked me to listen to Dr. Sai West and Dr. Sean Baker have a discussion on their MeetRx podcast. And I will put the link in the show notes. But they talked a lot about nitrogen and just. Imbalances that happen for carnivores that are eating meat based long term. I was fascinated because I don't talk about it too much, but being a meat based practitioner, there aren't many colleagues I can turn to and saying, Hey, have you seen this trend in blood work?、Um, a lot of people on the internet don't look at blood work because they don't work with patients and clients one on one. And a lot of my colleagues in the nutritional therapy space,、um, they aren't meat based. So while they're paleo, the markers will be different if you are almost eating zero carbs. So once I heard the podcast with Dr. Sai West and Dr. Baker, I was very fascinated and I really wanted to pick Dr. Sai West's brain just because there are nuances that I see in my practice and I can tell he sees in his. And so we got down to talking a lot about nuances in the carnivore diet. Now, this episode is very technical and honestly, it is actually geared more towards people that have been doing consistent carnivore for at least one year and beyond. And now their blood markers are not necessarily Looking that good, they may have stalled in weight or they're even gaining weight. This is where this podcast in its entirety will be super beneficial for you. We talk about consuming too much liver, we talk about possibly overdosing on micronutrients, we talk about liver health, and if we need bile from our livers, but our liver is Inadequately functioning, then what does that mean for a high fat carnivore diet? We talk about these little nuances that are very beneficial if, again, you have not been seeing all the improvements on a meat based diet. So let's get right into the conversation. Hi, Dr. Sai West. Thank you so much for joining me today.、Um, I'm sure most people already know you, but for those that don't, maybe if you can just kind of introduce yourself、um, in your background. Great. Yeah,、uh, it's really great to be with you again. By the way, congratulations on that book. It was excellent. Thank you. Thank you.、Uh, I love that. But、uh, yeah, my background is that I'm a medical doctor. I'm actually a surgeon.、Um, I'm both a pediatric surgeon and an adult surgeon. And my primary interest over the last years, much to my own, kind of against my better judgment, has been to do more and more of the metabolic health. But from an ethical perspective, I just can't ignore that in the surgeries that I do, particularly when it comes to metabolic surgery. So I've become more and more involved with understanding and managing the biology of insulin resistance and nutrition, and in particular, juxtaposing that to the conventional thinking. 
and using my clinical experience, my, my interactions with my patients to understand trends where perhaps we haven't had data before. And that, I think, is what we'll talk about today. Right. But I'm clinically active in the state of Florida. I do consults all over the world. Uh, today, I was in Saudi Arabia. I was in Caracas, Venezuela. I was in Paris. Uh, it, it's just beautiful how the world has opened up. So, um, But that's my background. Um, the only other piece about me is that I personally have lost about 98 to 100 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I still fight that fight pretty valiantly. That was 22 years ago. And so there's a personal angle to this. And then finally, I have done my time in the laboratory doing some of the basic science, the basic research into the way that carbohydrates interact with the blood vascular space and some of the issues that are uh, fundamental to understanding vascular injury and diabetes. So that's my background, but I really am primarily a clinically active uh, researcher and practitioner, and I see a lot of patients every day. Yes, and that is one of the biggest reasons I wanted to invite you um, on my channel, on my podcast, because there aren't too many people publicly that work with clients day in and day out or patients that see blood work and then trends to see if things are really working. And um, I heard you on, I think it was Meet RX podcast where you and Dr. Baker talked about like trends that you've seen in blood work. And so I definitely want to dive into that. But, you know, one thing that caught my kind of ears um, where I just basically perked up is I've been doing a lot of research on liver imbalances, you know, bile, uh, biliary imbalances. And I know that you have a PhD with kind of liver health. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. For example, biliary cirrhosis, bile acid, malabsorption, even cholestasis, it's all in a sense, just an imbalance of uh, bile, maybe bile blockage. And so I just am starting to kind of go down this rabbit hole of so what does this mean for a carnivore? You know, can we be over and maybe this is where it's going to bleed into the uh, blood work, but are we sometimes overdoing fat soluble vitamins, maybe even the B vitamins, because like B12 and I think folate and maybe even sometimes B6 can slightly get stored in the liver. And so if we're inundating the liver with a lot of excess nutrients, where we sometimes see hypervitaminosis A, can that actually affect our health? And so because you're, you know, you're an expert with the liver, I just wanted to kind of pick your brain about that. Absolutely. And I appreciate that. And I think you're absolutely correct is that a number of people who are able to sustainably do tough things, at least initially, like strict carnivore, that kind of thing, have what I call nth degree personalities. In other words, they'll do something to the nth degree. And sometimes more of a good thing is not necessarily a better thing. And that's really what we're talking about. And also with the exposure, especially under the COVID lockdowns and things of, uh, probably too broad and too ignorant a population on the internet where too many people are wannabes giving advice who have no basic knowledge, but they're smart salespeople and they're trying to push a product. So they come up with a tiny little quirk that's kind of irrelevant. And then they blow it up into this whole big expose. And at the bottom line of all of that, they're trying to sell a product. And I have huge issues with that because First of all, fundamentally, the human body is incredibly resilient. It is really, really good at taking care of itself. Otherwise, we wouldn't exist as a species. So what we really have to do is to get out of the way of the body doing what it does best. And um, so that's the first thing. Just to take one thing off the table, because you mentioned a number of things where there are certain discrepancies. You talked about certain diseases that are congenital or genetic abnormalities of bile production, bile release. These are enzymes that don't work properly, certain channels that don't work properly. Um, So there are a variety of non-nutritional diseases of the biliary system and of the um, liver that I want to take off the table. I think they're outside of the spectrum of this discussion. Certainly we can make those diseases worse by eating inappropriately, but I don't want to discuss those. And I want to make sure that we draw a specific line around what we as human beings can improve in ourselves versus what we can't improve in ourselves. And we leave what we can't improve into ourselves to gastroenterologists, to hepatologists to help us with that. Biliary cirrhosis, some of those diseases are important to understand. Let's step back and we'll talk about the biliary system first. And the biliary system does two things. It 
Number one is a waste disposal system. So it's a way to get um, lipid-soluble waste in, back into the intestinal tract. But the biliary system is also connected to the lipoprotein cholesterol system as part of fat, mob- fat absorption and fat mobilization. So one of the discrepancies with the human body is a number, fat and a number of things that are fat-soluble, that are lipophilic, that like fat, um, are inherently important to the human body, but the human body primarily is water-based. It's an aqueous body. So we've got this discrepancy between fat and water. And therefore, we have to have two systems, one to transport and manage fat, and the other one to transport and manage water. And obviously, the, the two, they interface, but they don't mix. And the biliary cholesterol lipid system is there to, man, to manage fat. And then we've got the aqueous system, which manages sugar. And one of the interesting things is, in our bloodstream, we have two things. We've got fat that we use for energy, and we've got sugar that we use for energy. One is hydrophilic, the other one is hydrophobic. So it's an interesting discrepancy, and it's important to understand that as we look at this. So the biliary system is there to handle fatty waste. So if you do overdo some of the vitamins and the fat-soluble vitamins, they'll get dumped out. The bile system is very good at getting rid of certain toxins um, and certain uh, byproducts that get used up that are waste from metabolic processes. When we're continuously turning over our cells, we call it autophagy, but that's basically waste products. Some of it gets reused like a junkyard, but some of it has to be disposed of and it gets disposed of in the bile. The other key thing about the bile, so when it comes to cholesterol, cholesterol is essential to have in the intestine for the reabsorption of lipids, but it's also a waste place for excess cholesterol. And one of the key principles that governs how much cholesterol the liver makes, some of it has to go to waste, some of it gets used by the body, is insulin. So if you take biology in a healthy insulin-sensitive person, when we eat a meal, insulin levels go up, whether it's protein or whether it's sugar, whether it's fat, insulin levels rise a little bit, and insulin switches on the cholesterol production pathway in the liver. It's called the HMG-CoA reductase pathway. Insulin and thyroid hormone manage that pathway. So it switches that on during meals when insulin levels are up, and it switches off the parallel pathway, which is the ketone pathway. So you're either producing ketones or cholesterol. And insulin regulates that. So during a meal and shortly after that, you're producing cholesterol under the influence of insulin. But then what should happen is very rapidly after the meal gets absorbed and stored, your insulin level should go down. And if you're eating once a day or twice a day, you get this insulin spike and then the insulin goes down and you switch off the cholesterol production pathway and you switch on the ketone pathway. And that's why healthy people are in ketosis between meals. So we're using some of the fat that we've stored. And that ketogenic pathway is governed by glucagon, which is the hormone that releases sugar and releases ketones, produces them and releases them from the liver to the cells. So we have this negative feedback cycling between insulin and glucagon that is normal. Now, just as a caveat to that, cholesterol is important for the production of VLDL, one of the lipoproteins. It's the one that the liver makes. And during and after a meal, it puts the fat, the triglycerides that the liver makes, and it puts the cholesterol into that, and they get shipped out to the fat cells for storage. That's why that insulin process is down. And then between meals, when your insulin level is low, you produce, the liver produces a molecule called HDL. And HDL has the job of going out and... um, uh, uh, um, picking up itinerant cholesterol, bring it back to the liver, and also reformatting what, what LDL looks like. Be that as it may, we want that diurnal cycling between VLDL, HDL, and also cholesterol is the precursor for all steroid hormones. Estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, cortisol, all of the steroid hormones start out as cholesterol, and that's regulated by insulin. So you see how all of this integrates. Now, if you are on the standard American diet, if you're eating a lot of carbohydrates, if you're insulin resistant, then your insulin levels never come down. So you switch on this cholesterol production pathway continuously. And even if you're fasting, 
even if you're not eating, your insulin levels are high, you're insulin resistant, and you're continuously producing cholesterol, you're not producing estrogen, at least um, uh, ketones. And the problem with that excess cholesterol is that has to go somewhere. So some of it goes into circulation, but some of it goes out into bile. And the bile goes through the liver into the bile ducts, and most of that is concentrated in the gallbladder. Because what bile does is bile is the way the human body absorbs fat and fat-soluble vitamins. Fat is the only product that doesn't go from the intestine straight to the liver. Fat goes from the uh, intestine via something called the thoracic duct. And here in the left neck, it dumps into the big vessels of the body and gets distributed directly to the fat cells. And what bile does in part is it produces this little, actually, it's a very large molecule. It's called a micelle. It's like a soap bubble. And into that soap bubble, um, you can put the fat, you can put the, or the, the intestine puts the fat, puts the broken down fat, the triglycerides, the phospholipids, and also the fat-soluble vitamins, vitamins A, D, E, K are the four fat-soluble vitamins, they then get absorbed into the lymphatic system, go to the bile duct, and go to the, go to the neck and get distributed straight to the fat cells. And from the fat cells in a molecule called LDL, back to the liver where the ADEK, vitamin K is an important liver um, uh, uh, vitamin, where they get used in the liver, but they also get distributed to the bones, to other places. So that's that cycling. So the bile has to be concentrated in the bile duct so that when you eat a fatty meal, let's say you eat your ribeye steak, the gallbladder squeezes and produces enough bile to massively absorb that fat. However, when you overproduce bile, uh, sorry, when you overproduce cholesterol because you're insulin, insulin resistant, now all that cholesterol, massive amounts of cholesterol gets into the, into the gallbladder and it sits there and it forms crystals cholesterol crystallizes and it forms crystals and those crystals form little stones. And we call those little stones, gallstones, cholesterol gallstones. And they settle into the liver. If they go down, the tiny stones go down the duct, they can block the duct and cause acute cholecystitis, or they can cause inflammation of the gallbladder. Now that doesn't happen instantly. It happens over years and years and years, decades of standard American diet eating. So by the time a patient comes to me as a surgeon with diseased gallbladder or they've got pancreatitis from gallstones or inflammation, they've had years of their gallbladder not working, but they didn't even know. And this is important because of the noise on the internet, the BS noise on the internet. So that gallbladder hasn't been functioning for a decade before someone realizes, oops, I've got to get a surgeon involved and get it out. So it's irrelevant. At the same time, during all that time while I've been eating fat and other things, the bile is still running down out of the liver into the bile ducts. Otherwise, they would turn yellow. They'd get jaundiced. Yes. You get jaundiced when the bile duct is blocked and the bile spills over into the bloodstream and it settles in your skin. And you get very itchy because those are the crystals that occur in the skin. So <clears throat> for people that have got gallstone disease, now they've had their gallbladder out and everybody tells them, don't eat fat. That's absolute garbage. It's absolute nonsense. Your, your liver is still producing a lot of bile. If it wasn't, you'd be dead. And so therefore, you can still eat the same amount of fat. You can still eat exactly the same. You don't have to take a whole bunch of things like ursodeoxycholic acid, which is a medication. You don't have to take ox bile. That is, in the, that is an imaginary concept in the eyes of people trying to sell you a pill. Your body is absolutely fine. Now, if you drink a gallon of olive oil, of course, you're going to have the runs, you're going to have diarrhea, but that's true for anybody, gallbladder or not. And so remember, all because you just had your gallbladder taken out, it doesn't mean you suddenly have to stop eating fat or you have to take all these magical pills the doctors are selling you. You may get diarrhea a little bit easier. You may have a little bit of an issue with overload of fat, but that is never an issue. And this enterohepatic cycling, enterohepatic means from liver to gut, that's how we, how we move bile and fat around in the body. At the same time, the reason your poop is brown is from bile acids and bile salts. So you know, as long as your poop is brown, you got bile going out, whoops, my coffee went over, um, out into the garbage. When your poop turns white, like chalky, then you've got an obstruction of your bile duct. And that's a concern. And we see that from time to time. 
So as long as your poop is brown or dark green, don't sweat it. Don't worry about it because we know that biliary system is working fine and eat all the fat you can. So carnivores should not worry about the fact that their gallbladder is no longer there. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Yeah, and I agree with that. I mean, even if your gallbladder is not there, I mean, essentially it's the storage system where your liver will still produce the bile. Um, but a few thoughts that came in while you were talking about that whole process, and that was really good, a really good explanation. Um, one is that there are some carnivores that still still struggle with loose stools. Um, six months into the diet, they've tried the ox bile, they've tried you know other digestive enzymes, and it becomes perplexing of why are you still having loose stools? You should have been assimilated to the excess fat. And maybe it's some of this, um, the bile malabsorption. Um, there are studies where it says maybe 50% of people that have Crohn's or IBS may actually have excess bile in their colon. So that's one, that's, um, one of my questions. And then the other thing is if you, so let's say you've had a lot of the insulin resistant issues with the bile and then the liver or the gallbladder, and let's say you haven't removed the gallbladder because, okay, so now you're eating a carnivorous diet and you're healing, but maybe your liver and your bile aren't working perfectly. So, and then if you're also consuming a lot of, you know, foods with a lot of vitamin A or a lot of fat soluble vitamins or the excess of B vitamins, you know, whether it's in supplements or excess liver or whatever it is, maybe it can be a tax on some people. And I, I, I hear what you're saying. That is exactly the concern that I have. Too many okay. people make assumptive associations that are completely fabricated and completely false. Okay. So a large part of what you just talked about is based on assumptions. The way to know and, and we do this all the time with people with cystic fibrosis uh, and in certain short gut patients. There is a very simple study you can order, and it's called fecal fat analysis. Mm. And basically, it sounds disgusting, but you poop into a jar for, for 24 hours, and they can actually measure the amount of fat you have in your stool. And until your fecal fat is positive, you're just making assumptions that your gut isn't working properly. Does, does that make sense? Yes. And... Yeah. and um, Fat malabsorption is extremely rare in most okay. people. There are degrees to it. I don't know if you remember the weight loss medication called Orlistat or Ally. It was a fat blocking, uh, um, it, basically when people thought that, that we became fat because we ate fat, right. it blocked fat absorption. And the warning on the label, the side effect was uh, beware of fecal seepage because it basically blocked the absorption of fat. You pooped all the fat out and you basically lived in diarrhea land. So the first thing, if you're really worried about this uh, uh, six, to eight hour, uh, six to eight months out, get a fecal fat study. That's the first thing. The second thing is it may not be an absorption problem. It may be an enzymatic breakdown product. Remember, carnivores are pretty much 100% dependent on enzymes to break our food down. That's why humans have the longest small intestine of any mammal, okay? Because we are enzymatically programmed. We are not fermenters or digesters of our food. When we talk about digestion, it's enzymatic digestion, not bacterial digestion. So um, under those conditions, you may have issues with your pancreas where you're not producing the lipases, the, the enzymes that break the fat down adequately or break the protein down adequately. And of course, if you're eating tons of fat, no matter how much, uh, how normal your system is, you may be overwhelming that system. So those may be causes. Uh, the other thing is anybody that's had surgery or has inflammatory dysfunction of their small intestine in particular, and you mentioned the Crohn's, uh, uh, ulcerative colitis is exclusively a disease of the colon. Crohn's disease can affect your gut from the mouth to the butt. And it's an inflammatory condition of the intestine, but you, there is, there may be bacterial overgrowth, there may be uh, candidiasis, there may be biome issues as well. But the Crohn's is the classic autoimmune disease based on uh, an abnormal human biome. 
And in fact, uh, so if you've got short gut from Crohn's or you've got a processing issue, either not enough enzyme or too short a gut or not enough bile, of course, as soon as the fat gets into your colon, it's coming out the bottom end. So with those Crohn's patients, in fact, in my practice, where I see a number of Crohn's patients, we actually manage them on purpose with a higher protein, pure carnivore diet. And there's a group in Australia, I can't remember the guy's name, but he's the same, same group that described H. pylori for acid. You can Google this, um, who've done a number of experiments, uh, sterilizing their Crohn patient's gut with antibiotics, and then putting them on a pure carnivore diet and basically getting Crohn's to go into remission. So the inflammatory bowel diseases um, are bacterial and autoimmune related in large part, at least that's our understanding. And the carnivore diet over time changes that biome to be more uh, um, uh, carnivore based or animal product based rather than vegetable based. Because the bacteria that ferment food are different than the bacteria that esterify fat. Remember one other thing, once in the in humans, once food gets into the colon, it's game over. The colon can only do two things. The colon absorbs and secretes water, salt and water. Those are the only two things that cross the colon. So once you, your food has left the small intestine, it gets into the colon. It's liquid on the right side, the beginning. Um, if it's fat, that fat gets esterified. It gets broken down. If it's vegetables, it gets fermented in the colon. And that's what makes our poop. So if you've got a short colon, if it goes through the colon very quickly, you may have diarrhea, but that's not necessarily a bile problem. Okay. It may be a, an intestinal a rate of movement through the intestine, and that can also be studied. So bile issues are a tiny fraction of the entirety. And I think it is important if anybody has that as a problem to see somebody who is not to see a physician who's not a knee-jerk, anti-carnivore, anti-fat doctor, but let's figure out what the devil is going on by specifically analyzing uh, rate of movement, uh, pancreatic enzymes, uh, bile conditions, and also seeing if it truly is fecal fat or something else that's causing the problem. And you're right. I mean, I always get the GI map and there's, I think the steacrit, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it, but you know, yeah. that's normally the marker of seeing how much fat is in the stool. So makes a lot of sense. Yeah, stearic um, acid is what you're talking about. But, uh, you know, the best thing is just to look at global fecal fat. And then, so you want to treat the problem. You don't want to knee jerk to somebody on the internet that's going to tell you that this ox bile is really good for you. If right. you've got an enzymatic problem, there are pancreatic enzymes similar to what we use for ulcerative colitis, for, for uh, um, uh, cystic fibrosis patients, because their pancreas doesn't work properly. Um, if it is a bile issue, there's things we can do with that. Uh, there are ways we can change uh, that to improve somebody. Sometimes it's a histamine problem. In my own personal case, um, if I eat salmon, I know I have to stay at home. So I've got the choice. Either I eat the salmon and suffer the consequences, which I've chosen to do, or I cannot eat the salmon. Or Jane, my, my nutritionist in my office, uh, has introduced me to some of the antihistamine type products that work well. I'm just not comfortable taking them. The whole histamine thing, isn't that also related to the gut? So, I mean, some of it will be produced in your, um, I guess, other <clears throat> organs. But in general, most of the, um, the enzymes that break down histamines are in your small intestine. And so wouldn't the thought be that if you work on um, making the small intestine work better, the, there, you should have less histamine responses. But what I am noticing also is that carnivores seem to all of a sudden have more histamine reactions. Any thoughts on that? Right, you're absolutely correct. Now, again, that's a misused name, the word histamine. What you're talking about is intestinal inflammation. And whether that is antibody inflammation, antigen antibody, whether it's cellular inflammation, whether it's damage to the intestinal lining, it, the word histamine has become this catch-all phrase, yes. like using the word Hoover for a vacuum cleaner uh, or Kleenex for a tissue. Mm -hmm. It is a very specific, narrow, focused word when used in science, but it's, it covers now in the lay, and that's the concern with the internet, is Everybody is talking about this histamine reaction. They have no idea what it means. They just heard it from, you know, uh, uh, Bob the uh, blogger on, on, I'm Bob the blogger, by the way, Robert Sivers. Uh, but, but the point is that there are specific 
inflammatory reactions that get triggered by certain antigens. The classic one is celiac disease, which is gluten and gliadin, which affects every human being. Some at a subclinical rate, some at a clinical rate. And that's why one of the first things we do is to remove grains. There are, when you call histamine reactions, there are reactions, really what it's about is, is your intestinal uh, immune system going nuclear against a little bug. It's an overreaction by the intestine to a small trigger. And one of the cool things about insulin sensitivity, which you get from being mostly carnivore, is all of those inflammatory markers in the intestine, in the blood system, in the interstitial system, and intracellular markers, and we test for all of those, they all go down. So instead of the soldiers being on the street ready to go and shoot somebody, the soldiers are hanging out in their barracks. They're ready to go, but they're just chilling out and having a beer and waiting for some action. So understanding the, the way the inflammatory system works in the gut is important. There's antigen-antibody interactions, then there's cellular immunity. And part of what you want to know about your gut is how ramped up is it or how quiescent is it. And what a carnivore diet does is it just says, boys, chill out. Boys and girls, chill out. Go back to your barracks. And they calm down that inflammatory system. But the guys are ready to go. So when I eat salmon, there's something in salmon that irritates my gut and I have an overreaction and it's only to salmon and everybody's going to have their little quirks and you've got the choice then. But I think to use, I was incorrect in using the word histamine for something that I don't quite, I can't pinpoint exactly what it is, but I know what it is. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, when I looked into, because there was a period where all my clients would come to me and say, I have a histamine response. I'm having, you know, and then I started researching it and you know, there are some, um, some some research shows that histamine receptors are in certain parts of the body and then other ones that uh, the science shows that it's everything, right? Like any allergic response from food or um, anything is a histamine response. And so you need to take antihistamine. So I completely understand where you're coming from. Um, but I do see that in general, uh, people tend to say, well, I've been meat-based for a while And now I added a plant or I added a different type of meat that I was once intolerant to. And now I'm showing sensitivities. And I think when you are saying that these um, people are, you know, the, your immune system is kind of ready to respond. That makes a lot of sense to me, Um, especially if you eliminate something. And then if your body is running really well, it'll show like, Hey, I'm not a fan of you eating that. And I've had a similar reaction to salmon. Once I started getting really itchy when I had no issues to salmon before. And we see that commonly. It depends on, on where those, re- and sometimes they are immune reactions. Sometimes they're enzyme reactions. I'll give you a classic uh, example. I've, I have a number of patients who for a while say, oh, somebody on the internet told them dairy was really bad. So now they're off dairy. Dairy does this to me and dairy does that to me. And uh, the fact that they, so they exist because of dairy, they don't quite comprehend because all children can't survive without dairy. Right. Um, having said which, let's say they go off dairy for a year or six months or you have a really bad gastroenteritis, uh, the lactase, the enzyme that breaks down milk products, and, and it's not just lactase, there, there are proteins in milk as well as uh, um, the lactase, but the lactase, lactose intolerance, which everybody quotes erroneously, that enzyme lives in the very tip of the villi of the uh, intestine. And if you don't drink milk, why do you have to have the lactase enzyme? So your body removes those. And then if you have a glass of milk, you've got no way to break that down. So the milk creates this awful reaction. But it doesn't mean you're necessarily lactose intolerant. And even if you're lactose intolerant, lactose is actually a form of sugar. Mm-hmm. But it's the, the most common intolerances to milk are not to milk, to the, to, the, to the sugar. It's to the proteins in milk. And that's why a beverage company called Coca-Cola that you might have heard of are now making these protein-free uh, there's A and a B protein, and they're removing one of those proteins from their milk, which is less allergenic. But uh, those are all ways in which people come to erroneous uh, uh, conclusions and then swear adamantly that this is the problem without having any proof. And, and that's my concern with nutrition, because we've got the vegans going ballistic about it. We've got the carnivores going ballistic. We've got everybody going crazy with assumptions. And They may be correct, they may not be correct, but at least before you open your mouth, figure out what the truth is. Or if you're going to speak, say, I really don't have evidence to this, but here's what my thoughts are. 
And, yeah. you know, we're going to talk about something in, in that regard. It's an observation that I've made. And I'm now slowly with my colleagues trying to explore what that, um, what that evidence truly is. But any other questions along those regards? Any other thoughts along the lines that we were talking about? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it'll continue into like nitrogen, uric acid, because I know one thing you said is that you noticed that the um, BUN number goes up over time with like your insulin, um, you know, people that are insulin sensitive. And in general, I see a lot of the um, clients I work with, their markers over time, also their BUN is higher. Now, if their creatinine is normal, I don't worry about it as much. And then I look at the other things like, is their LDL going up? But I wonder, like the reason why I brought up all of this liver imbalance or bile imbalance is I wonder if sometimes it's the food that we're eating as carnivores, right? So if you think about just from a, and obviously we don't know their whole story, but the veteran carnivores that have been doing it for 10 plus years, a lot of them didn't eat nose to tail. They didn't eat a ton of liver. They didn't eat a ton of kidneys. And so they were eating mostly muscle meat. They weren't worrying about all the nutrients in chronometer and they're faring well. Now there's this new space where a lot of people are like, you need to eat liver every day. Um, I don't consider carnivore, you know, carnivore without liver and things like that. But, you know, the fact that we store, vitamin A, D, E, and K in our liver, and then some of the B vitamins we just mentioned. And if we have any fatty liver from our prior diet or insulin resistance, I do think there is a risk of overdoing the vitamin A, soluble vitamins for the liver, which then can maybe impair our liver, not function as well. And then maybe it affects our kidneys indirectly. And, and, and so I'm wondering, um, and we can talk about ammonia, nitrogen, and all that, but I wonder if it's some of the diet of these carnivores. So yeah, that was yeah. kind of- So I, I think the first uh, axiom of healthcare, at least as physicians, do no harm. Yes. And one of the things that we've got to make sure about, I'm myself a mostly carnivore. I'm about 95 to 98% carnivore. You just saw my baby who's uh, about the same and he's nine, 10 months old. So it's something that I inherently understand to be one of the healthiest ways a human being can eat. But at the same time, I don't want to blindly get locked into this. So I don't want your audience to understand that I'm anti-carnivore. I'm very pro-carnivore. And as such, I want to make sure that we are healthy and that other people can't point fingers to us. And I think what I said earlier on is the nth degree thing. One of the, one of the key things about uh, once you've been carnivore for a while, and once you're becoming insulin sensitive fat adapter, I'll talk about that in a second, you shouldn't need any supplements. I agree. If you, and, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about carnivore. It should be supplement free. But when people spend a lot of time on the internet, they're getting thrown. I mean, I get patients coming in with two pages of supplements and additives. And it's totally unnecessary. I mean, how, how the hell they can be fat because they're so busy eating all these pills. I don't know where there's room for the food, let alone. So unless you've got a specific deficit, Number one, it is unnecessary to supplement once you're in a steady state. Number two is um, if you're unsure about where your numbers are, they can all be tested for, but they should be tested for somebody by somebody who understands the difference between an insulin sensitive and an insulin resistant person. I'll give you a perfect example. And based on my experience, I've been doing this for 22 years. I read on average anywhere from 10 to 20 full blood panels every single day. Okay. So, uh, you know, I've got uh, literally about 30,000 patients on my books and they, they all tell a story. So one of the stories that I've, I've, I've seen with my, and I'm not talking specifically exclusively about my cohort of authoritarian carnivores who've been doing this for a very long time. And there's a spectrum of the carnivore diet, as you said, there's the nose to tail people, there's the ribeye people, there's the fish people, there's the egg people, there's the non-dairy, there's the dairy, there's the I don't eat liver, I eat a lot of liver. So within the carnivore sector, there's all of those. But the first thing that, that uh, I want people to know, is we get a lot of people coming in now who have low thyroid hormones, their, T, right. their T3 is low. But you see, you can't look at one number so you've got to look at TSH, you've got to look at T3, you've got to look free, free uh, T3, free T4, you've got to look at the whole spectrum. And in fact, one of the things that I've seen, if you're insulin sensitive with low insulin C-peptide, it is normal to have a low T3. So 
when people come in and their doctor says, oh, your T3 is low, you must go on, on some medication. You, those people, even though they're now in the upper part of the normal range, are overdosed on thyroid because the beauty about being carnivore is instead of your hormones doing this, they're kind of more like a vibration. And our, the ideal hormonal milieu in the human body is a gentle vibration that fluctuates. The difference, the way I describe it to my patients, but where do you live? In Austin, Texas. Okay, so you're close to the sea, but not on the sea. Mm-hmm. I live, I mean, the sea is out my back door over here. So if you walk on the beach, mm-hmm. you see these waves crashing onto the beach. That is the hormonal background of someone on the standard American diet. If you get in your boat on a calm day and you go two miles offshore, the waves are doing this, very calm, and that is an insulin-sensitive carnivore. And you can't treat someone who lives by crashing uh, waves on the ocean the right. same way. You've got to make that distinction. Does it make sense? Yeah, no, so, I totally right. agree with that. Um, oh, my- so that's the first part. But Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to tell you anecdotally. I mean, so my, one, my clients, a lot of the um, clients that are carnivore long-term, their T3 starts lowering and then... Yes, they start getting the concerns. But I personally, um, ever since going carnivore over three years ago, my T3 is low. TSH is normal. T4 is normal. That's the, are the other TSA, if your TS, TSH and T3, T4 are negative feedback systems. Yes. So if your TSH is high and your T3 is low, we've got to figure out why. You right. may have Hashimoto's. You may have iodine deficiency. Yes. Uh, there's, great, there's so many different options, and we've got to test for those. Yeah. But if your TSH is normal, and your T3 is low, and your T4 is normal, you don't have an issue, you're just carnivore. That is a good place to be. Does it make sense? Yeah, so no, I agree. The other, the other simple thing is, and I've got, and I've literally got, I've got blood work here. This is over 100 patients that I've collected in the last month okay. uh, that I've seen that are all uh, extended carnivores or, or carnivore veterans. I love that word. And all of these people, if you showed their insulin blood work, they've all had insulin C-peptides checked. If I showed that to every, uh, I'll just give you a read here. Let's just pull up one over here. Um, C-peptide 0.72, A1C 4.7, and well, forget about the A1C, insulin 2.6, C-peptide um, 0.72. And, and the difference between type 1 and a carnivore veteran is this. The type 1s can't make insulin the carnivore veterans don't need to make a lot of insulin. Does that make sense? Yeah. But if that carnivore veteran ate, let's say, a tub of ice cream, their insulin response would be great, but then it would come right down because they're insulin sensitive. But, and so we've got to understand those metrics because nobody in this country, no physician in this country ever sees that lower number without it being a disease state. But now it's normal. So the next thing we look at, and this is, I'm going to read you a quote because this is really getting to the nuts and bolts of this. This is a a patient that that texted me something. Been keto for years and about almost a year have been ketovore, then in the past four years became carnivore. The problem is, as this happens, my once normal blood glucose is now always 110 to 120. This is raising my A1C. Mm I eat maybe once or twice a day at most, and it's usually steak or liver or ground beef or pork. Not sure where this is going, but it doesn't look good. And I agree completely with that person. I don't care. I don't care at all what your insulin, your C-peptide is if it's low. I don't care what your LDL is if it's high. What I look for is markers of inflammation, in particular vascular inflammation. And we know categorically that A1C, elevated blood sugar, apart from nicotine, are the commonest causes of intravascular inflammation. We know that higher blood levels do that. So we look at those markers, and the question is, why is that happening? And all got very, very similar blood work. And they all look the same. They are all low normal BMIs. Mm -hmm. And when you look at them, they have no fat to give. They are all very skinny. They look really, really good. Um, for those of you that, that, well, I guess I'm not going to quote names on the internet, but these are not the Sean Bakers. These are the lean, skinny carnivores. Um, and the problem is they have no nutritional reserve. And if they're eating once or twice a day and they're not eating a massive quantity, they're not doing the Sean Baker three to five pounds of, of beef a day. And I love Sean. Um, but the point is that they're under eating and they have no supply. 
they're basically the Olsen twins of the carnivore era. And the problem then is that where do they get energy from between meals? Um, and there's two issues. The first one is they're eating once or twice a day or still fasting. They're having to break down their own bodies yes. for fuel, particularly to produce sugar. Because the other problem that I have with this group and the other similarity in this group, they're all fastidiously heavy fat eaters. They eat fat with everything. They're eating butter. They're eating MCT oil. They're adding lard. They're eating the ribeye steaks. They're, they're eating masses of amounts of fat and their protein fat ratio is off, at least nutritionally. Mm -hmm. So the problem with that is that, as I said earlier on, the human body is not either in ketosis or in glucosis. It is always in both. Right. <clears throat> you have to use protein. You have to use sugar. The yeah. rate at which you move the, uh, uh, use the two is different. But if you eat a big fat load for dinner and you don't eat for another 24 hours and you have no fat to give, your body is actually going to flip over to the having to manufacture sugar because it can't manufacture uh, um, uh, fat. So it gets that sugar from protein. So now you're breaking down your own cells. Yeah. And <clears throat> when you look at fat and carbohydrates, they consist of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, which the body can metabolize to water. Whereas when you look at protein amino acids, it's carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. And the human body is not very good at dealing with nitrogen. There are three molecules, there are three uh, ways in which we eliminate nitrogen. The first one is to turn it to ammonia and process it into something called urea, urea or B, when you measure BUN, blood urea nitrogen. That is soluble nitrogen, ammonia, ammonic, uh, uh, ammonium has become uh, urea in the, uric, uh, in the uh, urea cycle, and you can pee that out because it's a liquid waste. Creatinine is the other way in which we get rid of nitrogen. So creatinine is something we measure. We measure BUN and creatinine as a function of liver of kidney failure. But BUN and creatinine are eliminated in the kidney. They tell us about renal health, but they also tell us about nitrogen metabolism. And ideally, I want your, your BUN to be 18 to 20 or lower. And your creatinine ideally should be 0.7 or lower. Now we're starting to see these same patients come in with BUNs of 22, 28, 32. So somebody today that was at 38. Creatinins, we start to see creeping up. We start to see the 0.9s, the 1.2s. The same person had a 1.44 oh. with ridiculously low insulin. That's telling me that their, their kidney function is starting to fail. So they're starting to get into kidney trouble. And the third way in which we get rid of nitrogen is in uric acid. Now, uric acid is the common way in which reptiles and birds get rid of nitrogen as solid poop. So if you smell a bird's poop, that guano smell, that's the uric acid. But uric acid in the human body, we can only tolerate a very, very small amount of uric acid. Uric acid, like, like uh, cholesterol, crystallizes. And it crystallizes in two places. It crystallizes in joints, and we call that gout. And it crystallizes in the kidneys, and that can cause kidney stones. But when we're trying to get rid of the breakdown products of cells, um, protein, uh, nitrogen from protein, but also the purines and the pyrimidines, which are derivative, those are the cellular DNA, the RNA, those are derivatives of uh, DNA and RNA, or the purines and pyrimidines from red blood cells. That's where your uric acid comes from. And if you've got this massive autophagy and this turnover, you're now getting much, much higher uric acids. That same person had a uric acid of 9.9. .9. And my upper limit of normal, what I like to see, I definitely want to see it above 5.5. I typically want to see it below 5.0. And so the blood sugar starts going up, the A1C starts going up, which is just means that the blood sugar is continuously up. You don't have these high spikes of 180, 160, 190, whatever it is, but they're going up to the 110, 115 range. And on average, I mean, my blood sugar, I've got a CGM on here. My blood sugar averages 65 to 75, maybe 85 in the early morning. That's kind of my normal range. And I'm mostly carnivore. So once it gets 20 or 30 points higher than that, that's a concern. So it's causing vascular inflammation. Now we're seeing this protein uh, looping around in the body because here's what's happening. What's happening is your um, cells need fat and they need sugar. Mm -hmm. 
They need both, mostly fat. But the problem is you're not eating any sugar and you're going long periods of time without eating protein. So your liver is saying, dudes, I need a source for sugar. Well, where do I get it from? You're not eating any sugar. The glycerol in the fat and triglyceride is not enough. So it breaks down your own muscles. And there's this protein pool, this turnover pool that comes from your muscles, that comes from your enzymes, comes from your hormones, hormones. And vitamin D is a hormone, by the way. It's not a, yeah. um, a protein. It's a fat-soluble hormone. So we're using up our protein pool to manufacture sugar. Because remember, you can store fat in your fat cells. You can store sugar as glycogen in your liver and your muscles. But there is zero place to store amino acids. Yes. You have to transform them to sugar and then to fat. So now if you've got the cycle of taking protein, turning it into sugar, but your body isn't necessarily using that sugar, your blood sugar goes up, your insulin's not responding to that, and then the sugar gets circulated back to your liver and the liver turns it into triglycerides and your triglyceride count is going up. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. Your HDL count is still high. And the concern for me, uh, the question I then ask is, is that dangerous? And the reason why I say it has to be dangerous is because of the inflammatory markers. Their ferritin's going up. Their C- I, the CRP often sometimes does. I very rarely test CRP because it's such an acute phase thing. You can sneeze twice and it goes up. But your ferritin's going up. Your white cell count is going up. Your neutrophil count is going up. And then your lipids, which I also consider to be an inflammatory marker, they're all going up. Your A1C, which is a marker of vascular inflammation, all those numbers are going up. And that is concerning for me. A few things. So one of the liver imbalances, um, I think it was biliary cirrhosis, for example, that can affect like your ability to uh, um, excrete your bilirubin. Um, and then also then uh, in, in effect, it, you will also not be able to remove your cholesterol. So then could it be again, maybe some liver imbalances that can then cause our LDL to go up and not necessarily just this ammonia, the uric. So the first thing I want to do is I want to take biliary cirrhosis off the table. That is a primary biliary cirrhosis. We don't know what causes it, but it doesn't occur. There's no correlation. It's primary uh, because we really truly don't know what what causes it. And I've looked into this. It is not primarily related to our diet, to what we're doing metabolically, unless I've missed something. I've looked at it pretty carefully. There are other forms of biliary cirrhosis that are congenital. And a lot of those patients end up with liver transplantation. Um, So I'm not, I, I would like to diminish the dietary contribution to that, but you're absolutely right. It is very common for me to see my carnivore patients who have B12 levels in the greater than 2000 level. I mean, I'm just looking at this, uh, the blood work I have in front of me. B12s are through the roof, and I always test B12. But the paradox is often their vitamin D levels are low, which is interesting, okay? And that's got to do with the cholesterol cycling uh, and the the insulin, yeah. Liver, for example, so beef liver, chicken liver, all the animal livers are really, you know, so all the fat-soluble vitamins are supposed to kind of balance one another out. Well, they all have really high amounts of vitamin A. Now, you can counter vitamin A with, I guess, some of the vitamin D, but if you are taking so much of the vitamin A, there's like minimal vitamin D in liver, but there's also a lot of vitamin B12. There's also a lot of folate. All of those get um, stored in the liver when there's excess. So I wonder some carnivores say that they can go outside and they get, they're able to tolerate the sun more. Maybe they're able to get more vitamin D, but is it because they have so much vitamin A excess? And it's just, I mean, I don't know ways to prove this. Well, that's, that's no, the way to prove it is to measure those levels. And you're absolutely correct. Okay. The paradox is that we see um, the different molecules, there's four or five different types of vitamin K. We typically check K1 and K2, right. but uh, K, is, K levels, uh, A levels, and, and um, um, the A, the E, and the K, which are the three fat-soluble vitamins, are not uncommonly massively elevated. And the D is low. Because D, vitamin D is not a vitamin. It's a cholesterol hormone. It's a steroid hormone. And it gets produced in the skin. And then it has to be converted in the liver and in the kidneys into the active form of D. And the sunlight, the ultraviolet light activates it in the skin. So it's a different subset. But I am concerned in a carnival person because... High insulin levels block vitamin D. But so why are we seeing low vitamin D levels in carnivores when their insulin is low? And I don't have the answer to that. A lot of these folks are out in the sun. They're running all the time. They're out there all the time. I saw 
a woman today whose cholesterol level is over a thousand, which is ridiculously high. Total cholesterol is over a thousand. Her LDL is over 800. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, But now her triglycerides are creeping up and she's skinny, 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 pure carnivore, exercise like crazy, but she is a massive fat consumer. Mm -hmm. So what we've done with her is to diminish uh, the fat that she's consuming. You know, one of the guys that I absolutely respect tremendously, who's kind of migrated to this, although he's old as the hills, which is a good problem, is Richard Bernstein. Okay. And Dr. Bernstein is a type 1 diabetic who really used a ketogenic diet on himself because he was getting misinformation about type 1 diabetes. And, and his principle is, very, I believe, very important. The fat that matters is the fat that comes with your food. And pouring globs of extra fat on, and he's a type 1 diabetic who lives in ketosis, he says that is counter to my insulin. And he knows because he knows what he's injecting. And he says when we're using massive amounts of insulin, that is a concern in terms of managing our blood sugar. Does it make sense? So what, they, what we're doing with those folks is diminishing their fat consumption and increasing their protein consumption, not per meal, not, not in the one meal that they're eating, but with those skinny people, they can eat two or three meals a day and distribute that protein consumption through multiple meals a day. And then you don't suffer autophagy. So those are the patients that say, look, whatever you do, don't fast and get to a point where you're eating two or three times a day. So you've got continuous incoming. You're not going to mess with your hormonal milieu, but you are going to get more frequent insulin glucagon cycling. You switch those systems more commonly. And that's what we're looking for. So those patients, their their nitrogen metabolism and their uh, blood glucose get a lot better. The few that I've done that with now, I don't have the full answer to this, but when we increase protein and we increase protein fat ratio and we increase um, the frequency by which they eat, smaller amounts more often, that's where we see the shift back to normal. And the paradox also is, and I think you're correct, these people that are eating tons of liver all the time, tons of organs, that may be okay, but we're seeing hypervitaminoses with those folks. And B12 is the common one, yes. A, E, and K are the other ones. And a lot of these folks, unfortunately, and I can't tell them not to do this. I tried to, but they won't. They're taking DNK2 as a continuous, ridiculous amounts of supplement. And their K levels are through the roof. Now, their PT, PDT are normal. Their INR, which is really what you're using K for, is the clotting factors. Uh, They're all normal. We test all of those. But those are the concerns. And I think you're right that they're consuming too much, but they're also not using that much. So the other question you have to look at is, are they consuming? And this is where the, where the I don't know, and I'm, I'm throwing this out as a, as a question. One of the reasons their blood sugar is going up is because not excessive overconsumption or overproduction, it's underutilization. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, so no. It's whether you're using those vitamins to the extent that you need to use them to process if you're, if you're this fine vibration, if you're that two miles off the coast and there's just this, you may not need this intense, what we call futile cycling that uses up huge amounts of NADP, NADPH, all of those things. And that may be why your vitamins are rising to an excessive level. Um, they're becoming toxic, not because of overconsumption, but underutilization, under need. And in fact, one of the things that, one of the common things that we look at Theoretically, carnivores, long-standing carnivores should be profoundly vitamin C deficient. Right. And And the reason they're not is because you just don't need that much vitamin C. The human body doesn't store vitamin C very well. Right. So uh, one of the reasons you probably don't, and I I still squeeze a little bit of lime, key lime. I've got a key lime tree outside. I still squeeze it into my drinks every day. Uh, That's just more a, but I can't tell you that that's the right thing to do because most of my uh, carnivores don't use C. Um, we know that theoretically the level should be low, but they're not. Right. And, and so I think that's underutilization rather than underprovision. So I, I think that a large part of these vitamin excesses, and certainly B12, is not just consumption, it's lack of utilization. 
Stay tuned for part two. All right, guys, you know the drill. Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys next week. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.